Welcome to this episode of Active Insights, where we explore topics related to federal government, healthcare, and business. Today, we're taking a look at improving outcomes through healthcare supply chain management. Our special guest is Dr. Eugene Schneller, Professor of Supply Chain Management at the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. Dr. Schneller developed the Healthcare Sector Supply Chain Initiative at ASU, which involves a major focus on research called the Health Sector Supply Chain Research Consortium. The consortium is internally recognized for its design, bringing together competitors from across the health industry to solve common problems. He is joined today by Dr. Jason Ormsby, the Chief Healthcare Officer at Aptiv and leader of Aptiv's Health Solutions Sector. Welcome, everyone, to the Active Insights podcast, where our guests join us in exploring topics affecting the federal government and public sector consulting. Today, we're so lucky to have Dr. Christina Welter with us, Clinical Associate Professor in the Health Policy and Administration Division at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health, where she also serves as the Director of the Doctor in Public Health Leadership Program and the Associate Director of um, the Policy Practice and Prevention Research Center. That's a lot of jobs, if anyone's taking notes. Uh, Dr. Welter is a nationally recognized policy practitioner, visionary leader, and practice-based researcher committed to helping organizations and communities co-create equity-centered policy and systems change. Dr. Welter oversees multiple applied research and workforce development initiatives, where she has catalyzed several award-winning cross-sectoral leadership collaboratives, co-designed novel capacity-building initiatives, and built or translated evidence to foster policy adoption and implementation. She's also the co-editor and co-author of Leading Systems Change in Public Health, a field guide for practitioners, uh, which is what we'll be speaking about today. Um, I'm Dr. Kelly Sanders. I'm a principal specialist here at Aptive Resources. Um, I'm really excited about this because I've had the immense privilege and honor of working under Dr. Walter's tutelage um, as she was the director of my doctoral program and served on my dissertation committee. So I think I've actually known Dr. Walter for eight years now, which is kind of wild. She has been instrumental in helping me um, to see the world in a new way. And I'm thrilled that we get to um, have her and she gets to share her brilliance with all of you for the next 30-ish minutes. So. Without further ado, uh, we're going to start talking through some questions about leading systems change in public health, a field guide for practitioners. Um, I found it to be such an important book. It's written primarily for public health practitioners on how to improve public health by utilizing a systems change lens. But again, I think this has a lot of transferability um, to our work that we do with the federal government and consulting writ large. Um, so we're going to start off at a very basic 101 level of systems change, because when I started the doctoral program, this was a fairly new concept to me. Um, so we're just going to march through it. Christine, are you are you ready? I'm ready. Thanks for All having right. me. Yes. Okay. So very basically, um, what is systems change? Well, uh, systems change is really a process. And it's a process of, first and foremost, helping ourselves realize our own assumptions about the way in which we look at the world. It's about having our own sense of emotional intelligence about how we work with others. 
um, and how we can challenge our, our own sense of how we perceive challenges and opportunities that are really looking to drive sustainable solutions. Then in terms of systems change, it's really a process of building intimate, challenging, and yet trusting relationships. Um, and we need those relationships so that we can work collaboratively together um, in doing this work. And by doing this work together, we ultimately see different perspectives, different opportunities, and really different leverage points that create innovation and that can impact the system in a way that maybe we never thought about before. So systems change is really something that is iterative. It happens over time, and it's about yourself. It's about how you work with others, and it's how you work with your organization or your community to identify opportunities for sustainable change. Awesome. Thanks, Christina. So even going back just a step too, can you define a system um, so that we can understand systems change within that, that lens? Well, first and foremost, how we define a system is really about our own worldview. So when I started off by saying this is really begins with our own work, um, how we define a system starts with how our, what our experience and our expertise shapes what it is we see. So how I define a system is not going to be the same way as you define a system, which is part of this dance and exchange and relationship that we need to be um, able to work together to be able to have these conversations. But at its core, a system has to have uh, elements in it. There are different pieces of a system. It has to have boundaries. So we need to know the scope or the depth of that system. Um, so we have to put some arms around it so we can grab it and touch it and kind of be on the same page as to what we're talking about. Um, we need to know what's outside of that system, what people, what processes, what um, resources are outside so that we know and we're making a decision that they're not a part of this or they are a part of this. Um, and then we, we do look for, um, which then is called boundaries. So we're trying to decide um, sort of what's in and what's out. And I do want to say, um, in terms of defining system change and defining a system, one of the core pieces of that is acknowledging power and who has the ability to make those decisions and why. And so part of this is about acknowledging our own positionality and our own ability to make these decisions and why we get to make those decisions. So how a system gets defined in its boundaries and its scopes or the kind of the structures and then the things that pull it together is um, in part about the decision of the group and the decision of the leaders that are helping to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And leads me to my next question. Um, about system change, why do we need it and why do we need it now? I mean, I just started to hint at this uh, in COVID-19, even though I know it's an example that's used often, is probably one of the best, most recent ones that we all can touch or, re or re can resonate with. Um, you know, COVID-19 taught us that we still have tremendous health disparities. Black and brown communities experienced some of the most severe and significant, uh, both uh, mortality and morbidity uh, disparities due to COVID-19, um, not only in the U.S., but across the world. And these are not just due to the health disparities. They're due to really decades, if not centuries, of unequal policies and practices and resource distribution uh, that has been around for a long, long time that contributed then to what we saw in COVID-19. 
Um, and so what's required to uh, begin to reverse or to make an impact to redistribute power and redistribute resources is systems change. So for me, systems change is needed now because we are desperately need to be impacting equity um, and addressing racial health and social and economic justice. Um, there was a our journal article from the American Journal of Public Health that was released in 2023 that showed the United States, uh, even after a 30-year commitment to addressing health disparities, has declining health expectancy and greater disparity between Black and Brown folks and um, our white counterparts than any other nation in the world. And this is regardless of COVID morbidity and mortality. So we see evidence after evidence after evidence that addressing public health from the tip of the iceberg, from a technical perspective, is not working. We have to get to what we like to say, not only underneath the iceberg, not the things that we can't see, we have to deal with the water around the iceberg. Um, so now is the time more than ever as we see these tremendous, terrible health disparities due to health inequities to really transform the system. Yeah, and you just touched on something too that I'd like to revisit the, the technical piece versus like complex adaptive challenges um, and complicated challenges. So maybe you could spend a moment just kind of differentiating between those two, Christina. Yeah, so a part of the systems change process, you know, as I said, the systems change as it's defined is really a process of an, a relationship building and trust building to identify the problem and address it in new innovative ways. Part of the first step there, in addition to your own personal leadership role in development, is problem definition. We are trained in public health and we are trained very well. We are experts in our fields. Um, but we're technical experts. We're, we're trained to have answers. We're trained to use data in a very particular way. And we call that typically a technical approach. We look for the technical solutions and the technical problems. So, um, you know, fixing a broken ankle is, is a quick technical um, kind of si simple task. Um, a complicated task might be something like heart surgery, which is a big deal, very significant, takes a lot of experts to do, um, is not easy to do. But when we're talking about something like climate change, it is adaptive. Adaptive meaning that it changes over time. It requires multiple people at all levels of expertise, right? Not just, not just someone who has perhaps a higher academic degree or, or terminal academic degree. It's going to require a diversity of folks to really understand how to address climate change. And said more at the community level, there are many community issues that we could maybe see the symptoms and fix the symptoms through health fairs or um, providing services or providing much needed um, supports, but getting underneath those to what's why those supports are really needed um, is adaptive because oftentimes adaptive challenges, we have different perspectives of why that problem is a problem and what's really causing it. So the values that we have don't match. There's some discordance and we have different opinions and perspectives as to why the problem is being called a problem. So something that's adaptive is something that's probably making you a little sick to your stomach. It's not easy to solve um, and it involves people's values, whereas technical or complicated situations are ones that are probably easier to solve, the answer is more readily available, and you can have a couple of experts probably jump in and address them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, Christina. Um, yeah, as you described systems change and going about this, you did mention the importance of problem definition and having all of the, you know, the right stakeholders at the table because these are complex adapt- adaptive challenges. Um, just curious in your experience as a practitioner, like how do we do this? How do we actually make change at the systems level? Well, first it takes a commitment. It takes passion. It takes perseverance. These are not quick, short uh, approaches or, or fixes. So if you're don't, aren't interested in sort of that perspective or the long game, then systems change probably isn't for you. We live in a world and an environment that demands decisions and actions yesterday. Um, and I'm not saying that we don't take action in systems change, but you have to slow down a little bit to really understand the problem on the front end. And then you're over time examining, are you really hitting the below the belly, the below the iceberg and the water around the iceberg issues? So at the simplest level, one of my favorite exercises is just to go talk to different sectors and people outside of the world I live in um, and start to ask, how do you perceive this particular situation? What, what, how are you experiencing this challenge or this problem? What do you know that works about it? Or what are you doing about it? What resources do you have? What don't you have? What would you want to see? Um, And by talking to other perspectives, other people that have different perspectives, I start to see connections that show where I'm different or similar. And then I can put these folks together in unique ways to help address the problem or the opportunity. And I'll tell you, just by talking to people, it sparks their interest typically in whatever is going on. So if you're looking to build a team or start building a project, um, one of the best ways to start is just having these purposeful and intentional and meaningful conversations, but by really listening and showing that you're taking folks' words seriously and that you're working to integrate it into the um, kind of approach you're trying to take. So it sounds so simple, but how often do we really stop and pause to listen to people outside of our little sphere. Um, and we do that to hear their different perspectives and worldviews and how they might um, see the world in a different way. Yeah. So that sounds like that's where we start, right? You get you get the different perspectives, you meet with people outside of your realm and then start to get that same group together, start to define the problem. And then what? where do we go from there? And is that actually the correct sequence? I mean, there in the book, we do have sort of a kind of stepwise approach to problem definition, and it's organized also by these levels of systems change. So personal, interpersonal, organizational, community, um, the two really go together and they're not, they're not linear and they're not black and white and straightforward. You're kind of working at all levels at once, but I get that people need something to follow. So there is in chapter nine on problem definition. Um, tips on uh, how you might work to solve or address the problem. Um, So once you have a team and you've done some of that personal and interpersonal work of how you're going to, you know, who's the facilitator and how are you going to make decisions? um, How are you going to really challenge each other's assumptions in that group? You know, you'll do this kind of scan. We like to do environmental scans to get ourselves started with a lot of this work. Um, then, quite frankly, you don't stop with the questioning. You still question wherever your challenge is, is that really at the root cause? And so we use systems thinking tools 
Um, and some of them you all, I'm sure, know well. The five whys is a very simple tool in terms of asking why five times to get yourself deeper and deeper into the root cause of the challenge. Um, that's one tool that we've used. Uh, you can use different um, modeling perspectives to help see the different connection, uh, connection points. We do something called rich picture where you draw out the different kind pieces of the system and the, that are contributing to the problem. Um, there are a variety of tools that we we, we share in the book. Um, so uh, the point is you don't stop. You still examine and kind of um, really diagnose this challenge as much as possible. But then you start trying to place it into problem solving. So again, there are some, at least pilot, the, how you might move forward. So you can use a tool called the five R's, which helps you with current state and future state to identify where it is you might want to go. And again, then you go ask, either from your own knowledge, but you go ask other sectors and other um, uh, data points of how can you get from the current state to the future state, given those barriers. Um, and what you want to do is really push yourself to think of what's the cultural change? What's this change that really will change our mental models to help us get to the um, the ultimate state? And then you back up into policies and systems that need to change, and then you get to knowledge and understanding. So all along the way, you're pushing yourself to see outside of the linear, see outside of um, cause and effect, and look at uh, really the deepest level possible and, and ending with the symptoms or the tip of the iceberg, which is typically training and knowledge generation sits at the top, but the deeper policy and systems work, we're trying to push you to see um, first. Thank you, Christina. And what do you do? This this all sounds great, but it also sounds like we're dealing with stakeholders who are all ready for change and bought into this. What has been your experience with individuals who maybe do not buy into the need for systems change? How do you how do you deal with that? Well, it's a great question. And again, there's no simple answer. All these processes we have to start from the beginning as messy and imperfect. So you're absolutely going to have folks that, um, you know, that it, it's harder to see the change or they may not, may not believe in the change or not motivated. Um, so I have a strong background in change leadership. And I will say that I, the work that you need to do in relationship building and building what we call the container of how you work together is vital to start the trust with each other. But the process will be messy. And so as you get into a tough spot, that you stop and talk about it and talk about what might need to pivot or change. So um, I, in the way in which you're approaching this, so you might take three steps forward and five steps back um, because you need to slow down and move at the pace that everybody else is moving in order for them to really change the culture. If you go too fast with too many moving pieces, it, you will for sure struggle with implementation. So you have to pace the the thinking and pace the dialogue and then pace the solutioning at in a way people are really bought into. What's important to me about that is also shared vision. And I don't mean shared vision as in healthy communities and healthy people. Yeah, that's great. But what does that really mean ultimately? You have to pit, you have to create what we like to call as a destination postcard something that I can grab and that I can celebrate with if you like to drink champagne or tea or coffee, but you can celebrate together when you know you've gotten there that gets you to the vision. 
So it's both creating a vision that is truly motivating for the folks sitting at the table or who that you're working with and creating these destination postcards, these benchmarks, these steps to celebrate along the way, to stop and reflect and learn. Is that going to for sure help you along the way? No, but it is what the evidence and our experience tells us will at least help keep people more aligned and focused in a, in a common direction. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing from you is this takes time. Um, and I know you you did mention this before, but we live in an environment, especially in like the federal government, the consulting world where everyone wanted this. Yesterday, we have to deal with politically appointed leaders and you know, folks who are in certain administrations and maybe out with another. So I'm just curious on your thoughts on leading systems change in environments where there are frequent shifts in power and leadership. It's a tough question for sure. And I, I in our DRPH program, this is something very front and center since most of our students are dealing with um, whether it's government or, you know, um, uh, other community-based or other, um, there's some for-profit folks there. Um, and, you know, for us, it's about the thinking and the questioning and it's building a culture of what are some ways in which you can help your team and help your partners at least do some of this work um, uh, on a daily basis. And so it's really a behavior change. It's a mindset change. It's a culture shift. And if you have a learning organization, that helps foster that thinking and those diverse perspectives, you are more intuitively likely to see, practice systems change. And so regardless of some of the um, uh, changes in the leadership, of, uh, the hierarchical leadership anyway, you'll have practices in place that can help with sustained learnings, that kind of ad- that adaptive thinking, the leadership thinking. Um, mm-hmm. I will also say, you know, strategic thinking goes along with systems thinking. And so through strategic and systems thinking, knowing how to different um, pressure points of organizations and ways in which to use or work with constituents and work partners and with community folk in a way collaboratively to help really define the organizational role in, in um, in that strategic way can also be very enduring, regardless of the administration. Okay, thank you. Um. Just to put this all to life, because this has all been great, I would love if you could take us through your experience, like leading a systems change effort, whether it was COVID or or anything else that you've done in your, that you've actually been personally involved in or something that you've used as like a, a model um, case study for systems change. I'd love to kind of hear your perspective. Yeah, I can I can give up one that was very recent and rapid, and then a, a one that was more longitudinal. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be called up by the state health department director in March of 2020, Dr. Zike, um, during the COVID-19 response in those crucial early days where every health department was overwhelmed and we didn't really know what we were dealing with. And my background, um, while it is in system change and change leadership, I have a strong background in preparedness. And the way in which I approached preparedness was not only from understanding technical elements to how do you plan appropriately and using, you know, some of the mandates from FEMA, um, uh, how to use incident command, but it was really how to leverage community partners and the strengths and opportunities together with the, a, gov- a governmental entity like IDPH 
um, to boost our resources. So when I walked virtually, walked into IDPH, that it was a Saturday night, um, and had I had 24 hours to come up with a diagnosis and a proposal for the state health department to, to expand their capacity to better address COVID-19. And I'm being a little flip, but no joke, in 24 hours, I had I gotten called up by the director and I, 24 hours later, had to come back with a report for her. So I immediately started calling all the people that I used to work with in preparedness, ironically, some of who had also been called up, to ask them what was working, what wasn't working, what needed to be done. Um, and that became the basis of realizing that we were not tapping into surveillance systems um, in the community and in the hospital setting in a way that would help the state health department realize when they were at what I'd like to call uh, an emergency state. Um, so, for example, if an ICU is running out of um, ventilators or uh, other resources, there wasn't a system in place. And it seems so minor, but... Uh, it ended up being a huge difference in terms of how they could uh, better respond to the prioritization. We developed a red, yellow, green system, you know, reporting mechanism um, within about a week or two to help make sure we could prioritize those most in need. But that came from me asking, just simply asking what was working and what wasn't. Um, we took an examination of the reporting periods to see how data was being used and given flowing up to the governor's office. Um, and again, what was the most crucial thing that needed to be reported? What were the decisions um, and uh, what needed to go, you know, prioritizing some of those. Um, so systems, in other words, there in terms of data reporting, um, that was another kind of system we analyzed that was um, coming out. The last thing I'll just say was the staffing. So IDPH has 1,000, 1,100 staff, but they were only using a small piece of the staff, portion of the staff, because they weren't sure how to build it out. So we slowly but surely started um, creating a larger incident command system um, and broke out um, based on some of the needs we were hearing. Obviously, data use and creating these kind of surveillance systems was a huge piece of this. Um, but there were clinical functions, there were community functions, um, there was uh, safety functions, and creating work streams and people in charge of those work streams who weren't necessarily technical experts. So the woman who oversaw the in, during COVID-19 in this time, the operations branch, which is the clinical branch, didn't have a clinical degree, but she was a good facilitator. She could work with all types of folks with, despite their personalities and their, their communication styles to help delegate, help prioritize, and help them manage their work. So the data flow, looking at how to prioritize different resource needs. Um, data flow for decision-making resource needs, and then helping to identify leaders within the health department that could help build out management structures um, were three examples that, you know, I, with the first diagnosis, and then, of course, over weeks, we built that out. It didn't happen overnight, but I could identify them quickly. Um, I won't spend as long because in the book itself, another case study is with the Cook County Department of Public Health. I used to be the deputy director at Cook County um, I had a long, very great history with Cook, and I still work with them today doing planning and evaluation work. So in the system, Leading Systems Change book, there's a book chapter that my colleague, um, Gina Masuda-Barnett, uh, Melka Backke, and I wrote that describes a tenure, and really, quite frankly, it started in 2001 and went in the end with COVID. So it's 20 years of work using a systems change approach. And so rather than me tell you about it today, I will just ask you to read that case 
And you can see how that early formative scanning work of asking first responders and schools and emergency room management um, personnel about what they thought could be done for preparedness um, and how that carried over to um, H1N1 and then eventually COVID, um, you can see some of the systems thinking principles and how it was done in real time. And it was not perfect. We certainly had our ups and downs, but it's a good story uh, that lasted a long time. Thank you, Dr. Welter. So is it fair to say then that when our efforts have fallen short in the past, it's largely because we don't understand the root issue. And that's also because we didn't get all of the voices in the room to understand and to, to truly get the information we needed to understand what was actually going on. You know, I want to be careful in terms of diagnosing what in the past has caused or continued some of the, the um, disparities and inequities and or inability to address a problem sufficiently because I know how hard our workforce, uh, you know, works. And they're, they've been through so much. They're truly passionate and committed to their jobs, a mission-driven. Um, and so this is not about, you know, any one person or any discipline or any training that isn't effective. It's what else can and should we be doing? Uh, and I will say, I think what's missing, that's an and, it's not an or, is yes, it's its embracing the, a different way of, instead of having the answers all the time, can we stop and ask some questions about what are we even talking about here? Is this really the problem or, or situation? Do we understand it? Do we have all the right people at the table? Whose perspective are we, are we favoring and why? Um, who isn't at the table? Who needs to be at the table? Um, so it's starting to open up and really think about some of those questions and um, then gaining additional skills to help facilitate and dialogue and bring in different points of data that um, might really help us see something differently. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a both and. I, I want to be generative and positive and say I think there's opportunity. It's not to say the old way um, doesn't have its benefits. No, that's that's I appreciate that. Um comprehensive answer. I certainly didn't want to try to simplify that, but um, just the importance of having different perspectives. And I do want this to be the segue then to the changes that you've recently made to the DRPH program to reflect the need for public health leaders centering systems change efforts with a racial justice and power sharing focus, which you, you touched on briefly at the beginning. Um, but I would just like to know more about how that came about and the DRPH's program, uh, the evolution of that program, because this happened after I graduated. And it's just been really, again, I, I could see the seeds of it when I was in the program, but just really curious about your process. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the truth of the matter is that uh, while our DRPH program has always been equity centered, we were not explicit and we had not really examined ourselves uh, from a racial justice and social justice lens. Um, and what during the spring of 2020 and the racial reckoning and, and social justice movement that resulted from the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, um, we sat down virtually, we're a distance-based program, together as faculty and staff and said, uh, you know, this is not acceptable anymore. We cannot be operating the way we're operating and we, we knew we weren't doing enough, but we hadn't dug our heels in. 
And I'll be frank, we saw so many other leaders issuing statements of um, uh, support uh, for racial reckoning and um, the social justice movement, racial justice movement, but almost no action. And there's been uh, articles since exactly proving this point that very little action happened. And we decided that that was not going to be us. Um, so nervously and uh, but with a lot of passion and commitment, started a process um, that centered on really a collective pro collective approach. So we pulled in, uh, made a call out to our students for student volunteers interested in a, in a, it was a committee, but it wasn't a committee to do training or to do things. It was to understand what was really, what is the role of an academic program, a academic program in this work? Uh, what are the students, faculty and staff needs? What are some of the opportunities and threats coming in from the outside that challenge our program? Um, and so we spent three years examining ourselves with listening sessions. Um, we did do trainings to center ourselves on what we were talking about, um, but really a collaborative process uh, of understanding where we are and where it is we need to go. Um, there's a lot of iterations of it. We're presenting actually at the American Association of um, Schools and Programs of Public Health. Uh, with our, we have students and alumni joining us and staff and faculty um, to discuss the process. But it's important that it was, uh, we, ho we hope, we wish, very collaborative, transparent, inclusive. Um, and it went and kind of, there were um, six phases to it that I won't go into today, but just to show the iteration of sort of we gather some information, talk about it, make a plan, begin the plan, stop, reflect what worked, what didn't work, and move on. And it culminated in, uh, in a, a strong revision to the program to be very explicit about anti-racism and equity in every single course, um, as well as training for all of the uh, faculty and staff, um, and then really embracing principles of racial and economic justice. Um, so, for example, we're going to be um, really building for the first time program-wide, um, we call it a container, a community of what do we stand by and how do we do this together as a, um, really as a, as a community? And then how does that carry over for every class? The last thing I want to say that's so important about our process that I think is one of the, if not one of the top and most important pieces is that we really um, constantly would go back for collaborate as much as possible collaborative decision making for research distribution toward um, diversifying the program. So we identified our program did not have diverse faculty. And the, so we created a work group that would identify what would we want to see and what would this look like. We created a pitch for the dean's office to get the resources. And we wrote with students a collaborative um, collaboratively wrote a job description, and then students sat on the hiring committee to hire a new faculty member who we have today. We did the same thing with our adjunct processes, which probably sounds a little like, oh, it's just adjuncts, but no one in the school to this date, it, adjuncts are always assigned by people you know. So think about that. Decades and decades of people we know are teaching as adjuncts as opposed to a transparent, inclusive, open process with students and faculty helping to make those decisions. Um, so it's about power sharing and, and the ability for collaborative decision-making for what's best for everybody. The last piece of this is resource sharing. And so the goal for us is to, and we started to open up our books to say, we're gonna need more resources. 
how does that look for you all? What, you know, here are the things we need. Here's what we think we need to project. And then we have a conversation about it. We're going to be talking about um, development in the next month as a student group. So there's a lot I could say, but I think the emphasis is really striving for an iterative learning process, um, doing so collaboratively across the board. It's taken three years to really get to where we are today. And ultimately, it's sharing power and resources directed toward uh, racial and social justice. That's amazing. Can I come back? <laughs> Only if you're faculty. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I, but I'm just so, I, I know how much of a difference the program made in my life. And again, it's, the, it, that definitely was a focus, the equity focus and really changed the way I think about the world and, and shared decision-making to your point. But just the fact that you've made that full transformation is incredible. Um, so well, we're, not quite, we're not quite there yet, but we are there on a journey together. We have a lot, lot, of, uh, lot of room to grow for sure. Um, but it, I think the process and the intent and the practice, and that is the thing, you cannot just have values. You have to practice them. Um, so our intentions and actions are, I think, hopefully, trying. we're trying to align them. Well, and I didn't ask this question before, but I think this is actually a good place to end, but sustainment, right? Like when you mm. take three years and you are intentional and you do all of these processes, how do you then sustain the changes that that you so intentionally made? It's a great and hard question. I will go back, though, to this building a container, building a community. Mm -hmm. And so it is co-developing and then reiterating how those values and norms and practices live out in every part of the program or organization, wherever you are. So uh, that might mean, you know, as we're in class and somebody has... Um, a uh, family emergency and can't, or not a family emergency, just has a lot of stressful things going on and can't show up in class or has to turn an assignment in late. Our practice is to treat our students and our faculty as whole beings that have complex, messy lives. And yes, of course, they ultimately have to turn in that assignment, but instead of there being this strict penalty you know, um, uh, requirement, just a tiny example is changing the procedure and the policy to say, we had, we want we want to support you as much as possible. Um, another just so it's every time we can find an opportunity to live out those values, no matter how small or no matter how robust, um, I think that is about that shifts culture. That shifts the way in which we do um, our work. And that example is not perfect, but it's the quickest I could come up with. But um, it really is the practice. The other thing I would just say is communications. You can never communicate enough, which is just, I think everybody says this, but we have realized the need to communicate, communicate, and over-communicate. So now we have announcements in every one of our courses. We have a Blackboard page that we just branded for students. Um, our website, it's through stories, it's through newsletters, it's through, we have multiple advising sessions. Uh, we have an executive coach, we have um, a cohort advisor, we have a mentorship program. So it's creating all these structures where similar information is being shared and digested um, so that it's consistent and regular. Um, and then creating stopping points, too, to reflect on, well, what did we just do? What worked? What didn't? Um, so we do listening sessions for this purpose as well. But that helps students reflect, too, and it helps them realize sort of what they've done and how they've uh, what they've learned. So sustainability and sustainment 
is a culture. It's about creating a culture across the board, not just coming from the leader, but where we all are leaders and all can practice um, and support the, and what we like to call is an enabling environment. So the mm-hmm. decisions are made uh, more readily and easily by all that are uh, that reflect our community. It's amazing, Dr. Walter. Yeah, we have a lot of change management practitioners at Aptive who work for change within Aptive and also with our clients. So I think this is this is reinforcing and even adding to what I think our change management folks know. So this has been wonderful. Um, thank you so much for your time. Do you have anything else you want to share before we do some rapid fire questions? No, just I really appreciate you bringing me in to share a little bit about the book and our story. And I'm especially thankful for you and your leadership and um, staying connected. Yeah, well, this may not be the last time we asked you to do this. So I'm just hoping you'll come back again for a part two, maybe. If because I'm we can <laughs> talk too. I love talking about this work. Yeah, I love it. Okay. Um, so I got this inspiration from Dr. Brene Brown, who was someone that we did kind of reference a lot in the DRPH program about vulnerability and just what it means to be a leader. Um, and she does 10 rapid fire questions on her podcast. This is my way to channel my inner Brene Brown, um, even though I'll probably do it much more uh, poorly than she she does. Okay, number one, um, upcoming event that you are most excited about. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, uh, I, I can't even think of an event right now, of course. Um, we have something fun. Does it have to be personal or professional? <laughs> you can, you whatever you're comfortable sharing. Um, so we just launched a statewide workforce transformation initiative and there is a meeting of all the state health department or all the health department directors in a week. Um, I'm excited to actually, you know, talk with them directly and get to meet. I've met many of them, but meet them more um, personally. You know, I've been really um, craving that for all of us, I'm sure have. We're still a little bit in this transition post-COVID. So it's the human contact that I get excited about. Yeah, I love that. Things that inspire you. Three things that inspired you today, we'll say. Uh, you know, my, I mean, it's a little cheesy, but my kids, my kids, you know, every day they say something or do something that, um, I would not have thought of that way, or, um, they're more positive than I am about something, or they just, they, they see the world in a way that I don't. And I, um, truly, I, I just on a regular basis am inspired by them. Um, I'm inspired by my colleagues and practitioners that are doing this work on the field every day. That book was, their book was dedicated to public health practitioners because they're really on the front lines trying to um, balance the art and the science of public health. And I, we wouldn't be here without them. So um, that would be another one. And then I'll just say my mom, my mom um, is a social justice champion and she just celebrated her 75th birthday. Uh, and I got, we did videos, 90 second videos of um, all the people who are involved in her life tell, talking about all the work she does. And so that was very inspirational. That's amazing. Something that keeps you up at night. Oh, uh, you know, not, it is hard. This work is very hard. And so it's, um, I, I get, I literally, it's, I call it getting sick to your stomach because you don't have answers and people want answers. And I feel that tension. Um, and so it's how do you generate action in this thoughtful, 
compassionate, um, equity-driven way, and though make sure you're hitting the bottom line, whatever that is, for in a way that still elevates the right issues. Um, mm-hmm. When I say right, I mean you know my the, uh, my values or the values of the group. So um, I do lose sleep uh, about how to do that, how to do it well. Am I representing? You know, um, how am I checking my own privilege? How am I checking my own way of thinking? Um, so I'm I'm sick. I've got that feeling in the pit of my stomach more often than I wish because I do. I'm an adaptive thinker. Um, and it's hard. Yeah. Books you currently have on your nightstand. Oh my God. I have a stack of like 15 books. Uh, one, and I just, cause I'm a book, I have a whole, I'm a collector of books. Even if I don't read them, I love the ideas that are in them. So I have to hold them and I wish I could grab one, but a, um, radium girls, it's the yes. story of women, um, in the workforce. It was world war two. I think I just started. But there was one of the manufacturing plants was here in Illinois. And so one of my, the body of work that I work on and that I didn't describe to you on systems change is worker rights and protection um, for worker, um, for just work. And so I bought that. I think it's a local example and it's a real example of um, women being exposed um, to radium. So that's, that's one I have, uh, I have, um, oh, what's the name of the book? The chemistry. You oh, that's chemistry. Huh? Lessons in chemistry. Yep, that's another one that's sitting on my on my books. I have a lot, but those are two that pop up. Love it. I love it. I've loved both of those for very different reasons. So you'll have to let me know what you think. <laughs> I will. Um, must read book for all public health or health professionals. Other than uh, the today. <laughs> I well, let me the one that popped into my mind, um, which just she just wrote the book, but the concept is far older, is by Arlene Geronimus called Weathering. And Arlene Geronimus was a faculty member that I had the privilege of taking a couple classes from at University of Michigan School of Public Health and proposed a very novel and difficult concept of why we might see health disparities when we do, which really has to do with racial injustice. And I'll leave it at that for you to read the book. But that, now she wrote a whole book. She's had many, many years, decades of science behind the concept. Um, but the book was published, I think, this last fall. And I yeah. just think it's essential. It really shaped my entire career. I did have the privilege of reading that. And, and it changed me, too. So I, I definitely second your recommendation for that book. Um, self-reflection routine. Part of this uh, work important part of this work is self-reflection. So I'm just curious on your, how you work that into your routine. Uh, There are many ways, but one one way that is a, um, I belong to a monthly discussion group that has uh, different themes. And so, uh, you know, might be wisdom, it might be social justice, it might be hope. Um, They're all sort of mostly positive, but um, themes where you go through a series of exercises of sort of what was hope for you as a child, what is hope for you now, and you can read, um, you can listen to podcasts, you can read articles, um, and then answer challenging questions about your perspectives. Um, and so that I do that it's monthly. We come together at somebody's house uh, on a monthly basis to then share our stories um, as to what we did and what we learned, and it really helps me to hear everybody else, and then having me reflect on sort of where I was, where I am, and where I want to go. Um, and then I'm a, uh, I'm not like you, I'm not a, a, a triathlete or marathoner, or any, but I like to waddle. <laughs> I, I run, jog, whatever. 
Um, and I do a lot of my thinking uh, while I run. Yeah, love that. Words of wisdom for public health professionals. If you had something we could put on a like piece of wood that we would put on someone's door frame. I, I'm not very good with short, quick um, descriptions, but the thing, the two things that really come to mind is that um, you are the champions of change and the, the facilitators of change for our world. And you are the really public health is the most important thing. Um, if we don't have the health of our people, we don't have anything. And to never mm -hmm. give that up and to never uh, lose sight of why you're here. And that was going to be my second recommendation is but remember your important role truly and, and then connected to that is your why. So if I'm ever feeling um, frustrated or, you know, having a rough day, it's remembering why did I get, what are my values and why did I get into this work? Um, mm -hmm. And there are a lot of fun little exercises you can do the, to help yourselves do that. But it's... Um, we all, we all lose sight of that in the busyness of our deadlines. Mm -hmm. Okay, a few softballs, cats or dogs? Oh, dogs, sorry. <laughs> my husband's allergic to cats and, my, and I have unfortunately separated for too long. I have two dogs. <laughs> oh, I love it. <clears throat> Favorite vacation destination? Oh, so that's tricky. I'm sure I could say something smart and unique, but... Um, when I was growing up, we had a, uh, and my aunt still has a little cabin, tiny little cabin that was trailer originally in North Dakota, Bismarck, North Dakota, uh, right outside Bismarck, North Dakota, Lake Isabel. And that's where my grandparents were. My mom and I would go every summer and it's where my heart is. Oh, I love that. Okay. Last one. Greatest hope for 2024. You know, I'll fall back on one of my goals is, um, practicing what I teach. And uh, it really is to center people. I am not that I don't already or don't care or don't have, you know, sort of build relationships, but I get so busy and have been trained in academia and, you know, I'm a big implementer and um, do a lot of thinking. And I sometimes, you know, really need to be more grounded and centered in what people experience, how they experience it, how they're feeling that we are these beautiful, complex, messy human beings or furry beings, <laughs> um, bigger little beings, but it's really trying to be better listener and better connector and really the, um, and it sounds so cheesy, but it is really about love. Like at the end of the day, it's um, realizing we're all, we're all human and all um, um, have something terribly valuable to, to share and that I want to understand that and amplify it as much as I can. I love that. Dr. Welter, you are a treasure. This has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. Um, and we'll conclude there and hopefully we can have you back on soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really love being with you. And that wraps up another episode of Active Insights. Thank you for joining us and a special thank you to Dr. Schneller and Dr. Ormsby for the thought-provoking discussion today. Dr. Schneller's new book, the second edition of Strategic Management of the Healthcare Supply Chain is available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other retailers. Our website where you can listen to all our episodes and find supporting materials is aptiveresources.com. Tune in next time for more thought-provoking discussions on Aptive Insights.